You know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. One of the reasons why advertisers love What's Tech is that they know the show has amazing, smart, intelligent listeners who want to engage with big ideas. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about well, y'all, about our audience. So just go to podsurvey.com slash what's dash tech. That's podsurvey.com slash what's dash tech. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interest, and the show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. So it's not totally, you know, like a job, like I'm making you do a job, like, hey, maybe you'll make some money, maybe you'll buy some DVDs, maybe you'll buy, like, me a gift and, like, send it to me. I don't know. You can do whatever you want if you win a gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com slash what's dash tech. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so that we can keep the show free. The year, 1997. Uh, choker collars are still cool. Remember this? Um, MTV was still on. So uh, I, was, I was in film school, actually. I had gone to film school. I thought a lot about movies. I thought a lot about entertainment and media. I played a lot of video games, like a lot of video games. But I never thought of them that way. I made levels in Doom, the, the works. And I never thought much about them until I was in college and I played Metal Gear Solid. High-tech special forces unit Foxhound, your former unit in charge of them. Foxhound squad leader, Liquid Snake. So the Metal Gear games were these 8-bit, uh, you know, kind of stealth action games. And they had a, a kind of relatively sophisticated gameplay back on NES. But when they put them into 3D on PlayStation, um, Kojima, who's never been shy about his aspirations to be a filmmaker, um, really tapped into a lot of the sort of visual language of cinema to make Metal Gear Solid. And he made what was at the time, like, handily, the most cinematic game ever made. Anyone going with me? As usual, this is a one-man infiltration mission. It sort of um, instantly changed my perspective of video games. I, I, I like to say usually that I had a moment of clarity, like... Unlike I've had in the rest of my life, you know, I don't, you don't normally have like these epiphanies where you do something and something becomes immediately clear. And um, I stopped studying film. I changed my degree to uh, to English, and I decided if I wanted to get into entertainment, I need to learn a lot more about it in the first place. Hello, and welcome to What's Tech, a podcast from TheVerge.com. My name is Christopher Thomas Plant, and I am your humble host. Today, I am joined by my longtime friend, uh, co-worker, colleague, the editor-in-chief of Polygon.com, Chris Grant. Try not to be too confused. Our names do sound a lot alike, and publicists often make that mistake, so you won't be the first person. Uh, I will note up top, both of us are communicating uh, remotely. He is in Philadelphia. I am in the superior city, Austin, Texas. So if there's a little bit of audio hiccups, that's why. Uh, how are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing real good. 
Um, I'm glad you invited me here for the first episode of What's Better, Philly or Austin. And I'm really excited to... Uh, We'll be spending the next three hours listening to Chris talk about the architecture of Philadelphia's historical buildings. Beautiful. Um, Let's start it off from the top uh, with the broadest question that may ever be asked on this podcast. What is a video game? It's a big one. Um, I thought the best way to start this this topic with a Verge audience was going to be to put it in terms of iPhone games or maybe Facebook games. That's, I think, probably the easiest way in. Or Android games. Just to okay. be clear, we also respect okay. Android as a market. So I think Crossy Road, but the mm-hmm. graphics aren't stylized. That's a video game. Um, so video game, I, you know, I think it's actually interesting because now, maybe more than ever, but I think it's always been a question about what defines a video game. Is it choice? Is it input mechanics? Is it graphics right what about a text adventure um and i think you know video games very broadly defined are any kind of interactive entertainment uh i think even calling it a game can be misleading uh because i think a lot of them aren't necessarily gamey but they are interactive and they are entertainment um i think some of them are very twitch some of them are very complicated some of them are very simple or very accessible but they're all video games and i think the same way film can extend from a Hollywood blockbuster to actual literal art films in a museum, um, you know, even in a way, all the way to the language of gifts, you could all sort of couple that in the same thing. Video games are hard to pin down, um, but I think we all are sort of familiar or fluent in the commercial video game world and, and what that looks like. So, uh, Flappy Road. Crossy Road, Flappy Road, being a more successful version of Crossy Road is basically yeah. Crossy yeah. Birds, Flappy Road, Got all that it. stuff. Uh, what was the first video game? So you uh, will probably not be surprised to learn it. This is actually a topic of some debate. Um, one of the ones that I've always thought of is as like looking the most like a video game, and um, you know, being closer to the modern era of game development was um, Tennis for Two which was designed uh, by a guy named William Higginbottom. Um, it was played on oscilloscope. That's how you know it's cool. Um, and it's one of those things that uh, when you see it, it, it looks a lot like Pong, frankly. Um, and I think it's the kind of thing that really started a lot of the discovery of video games. And, and you know, from that point on, things moved pretty quickly. Um, that was 1958. How long did it take before video games became popular, I guess, in a pop culture sense? So Pong is normally considered to be the first kind of, you know, hit video game. That's 1972. So you're talking over a decade. Um, a lot of that's technology. So in between Tennis for Two, uh, you have you have Space War, which is, you know, also considered one of the very first games. This is a game that was created at MIT, by students on the PDP-1, which was this big sort of mainframe computer. Um, Space War was later adapted into a game called Computer Space. Uh, but Computer Space was made by a guy named Nolan Bushnell in 1971. The next year, he would found Atari and make Pong. Um, so you start to see, like again, this sort of chronology, right? These things happen in a certain order. Um, so for a lot of people, Space War might be the first game. Uh, but certainly, you know, experiments and things existed well before that but but pong i think is you know for a point in a map 
Pong is a uh, is a really big turning point for video games. I suspect a lot of average people imagine kind of video games trajectory being this straight line up with Pong and then maybe Space Invaders and Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and then Mario and then Sonic and up and up and up. But there is this divot in 1983, uh, which was a, a, the video game Crash, I guess you could call it. Can you explain mm-hmm. what that was? So after you had, um, you had arcade games in the early 70s, uh, by the mid to late 70s, you had home consoles, right? You had um, the sort of first and most famous one there was, um, or, or famous ring first, I should say, was the Brown Box, the Magnavox Odyssey designed by Ralph Baer, who just died recently, RIP. Um, but the most popular one was the Atari VCS, uh, came out in 1977, uh, later renamed the 2600 uh, when they had future models of it. So the Atari uh, VCS and future Atari systems um, were extremely popular. They didn't have a lot of quality controls. So there was a lot of different games coming out at tons of different price points. Video games were still expensive to produce. They were still hard to make. But you had a ton of video games on the market. And as all those games flooded the market, and as you know, consumers' ability to discern quality uh, got lower and lower, um, the market sort of imploded on itself they effectively became worthless. And the value uh, to buy a game was so low that the cost to create it couldn't be justified. So, you know, the market sort of ate itself. Um, It was run amok in a way. The arcades notably survived throughout that whole thing. But from 1983 to 1985, um, a lot of people thought that home console gaming would be dead. Uh, And especially sort of as arcades did really well during that same period, that maybe... You know, video games just weren't meant to be played in the home. They were meant to be played at the local pizza parlor. So the year is 1985. A young Christopher Plant is born. The Kansas City Royals upset the St. Louis Cardinals to win the pennant. Something happens in video games at the exact same time to bring console video games, home video games back. What is this? Magical. Um, uh, a Japanese company called Nintendo. Never uh, heard of them. At that point, they had been making some arcade games uh, of some renown, Donkey Kong notably, Mario Brothers as well. Um, but for a long time, they were better known for making playing cards in Japan. Um, they had made a system in Japan called the Famicom, the family computer, uh, that came out a couple years earlier and was a big hit. It was a really huge hit, and they thought they could bring it to the U.S. Um, they actually brought it to, uh, I guess it was CES one year with a totally different design and nobody looked at it. Nobody cared. And so they didn't think they were going to do it. And they, they redesigned it to be bigger, chunkier, to look more like a VCR. At this point, the home video revolution was uh, sweeping across America. So you, you would put the cartridge in from the front and pop it down the way you did on early VCRs instead of putting it in right from the top. And they renamed it the NES. That sounded more like home electronics. Americans love home electronics. So it was the Nintendo Entertainment System. And when they released it in 1985, a lot of people were still really skeptical of it. But it proved to be a huge hit. A lot of that was on the back of hit games like Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers still today is considered one of the great all-time games. So when it came out in 1985, I think it was a real eye-opener that the quality of the game was so much better than a lot of what you would get in an arcade. It was a different kind of game than what you would play in an arcade. Um, and, 
you know, kids all over the country uh, needed one. And one of the ways that Nintendo ensured that it didn't repeat the failures of the previous video game console world was that they effectively had a lockout on their cartridges. The only cartridges that would work in the console were cartridges that were sold directly by Nintendo and were approved by Nintendo. And they made it difficult to backwards engineer those cartridges so that if your game was a flop, that wasn't Nintendo taking a hit. It was whoever bought all those cartridges. Nintendo already got paid their licensing fee. They had the Nintendo seal of quality. So even to get a cartridge, even to get a publishing deal, you had to make a game of, of some quality, right? NES was going to be a place where you only played good games, not junk. Um, and that was enough to reassure a lot of the parents that were buying the thing. And it was enough to make um, you know, the the entire 8-bit console era as defined by Nintendo. Um an era of some really classic games that we still think and talk about today, uh, which, you know, rising tide raises all ships that that strength, uh, reinvigorated the home console market. So just a few years later, 1989, uh, you had Sega who had tried to compete with Nintendo with the master system and failed. You had Sega try again with the Sega Genesis beating Nintendo to the 16 bit era and starting one of the juiciest console wars of all time. We're, we're going to get to that console war in just a second. But there is something interesting about thinking about Nintendo's seal of approval now. Because Steam, which is the platform you use to download games uh, if you enjoy games on PC. There are other platforms, but it's the dominant one. For so long, was so restrictive of what could and couldn't be on that storefront. And it felt curated in a similar sense to what mm-hmm. you're talking about with Nintendo. And recently... Uh, relaxed those restrictions severely uh is is it a different time now where the democratization of games is more reasonable and the industry is strong enough uh that it can stand having people buying uh loads of junk i think this is actually a really interesting question i think the app store um model changed everyone's thinking about this on ios when they launched the app store Anyone could publish their game, you know, with unless you had a Confederate flag in it. Topical <laughs> reference. Um, so that, you know, seeming weakness, right? How, how do you separate noise from signal on this app store? Uh, ended up creating a marketplace that was lucrative enough and vibrant enough to create sort of global hit franchises like Angry Birds. Um, I think that the physical limitations of the NES, you need cartridges, Right, like that defined a lot of how that worked. I think with Steam, with the App Store, increasingly with the other home consoles, you know, Xbox Live Arcade was very curated. Right, once a week, every Wednesday, they would release a game or more. I think you're seeing a lot of the companies go towards a uh, a higher bandwidth pipeline, getting more games into market, and letting the market decide if those games are good or not. You know, your example of Steam is interesting because the biggest hit out of PC recently has not been a game on Steam. It's been Minecraft, which was just, you know, basically distributed on their own website. So how did they find success there? It was quality. It was word of mouth. Okay, so we're fast forwarding. 
We are we're passing the PlayStation One. There goes you playing Metal Gear Solid. We I'm uh, so young. I have hair. Yeah. The the Dreamcast it launches. It fails. Uh, a little before that, GoldenEye comes out on Nintendo 64. They revolutionize 3D games. Uh, then they kind of uh, taper off for a while. Uh, Sony becomes dominant with the PlayStation 2. Microsoft comes into the market. Xbox, boom. Uh, okay, we're getting closer to modern day, and it's the early 2000s, and this thing called indie games becomes a thing. Uh, what are these? So it's actually interesting. I think the, t- the name indie games is a thing now, um, in, you know, in direct opposition in a way, or at least contrast to what we'll often call AAA games or corporate, I guess isn't the right word, but certainly big budget blockbuster games. Um, although certainly indie games can also be blockbusters. Um, but indie games existed before then. If you go back in time, let's, let's go back in the time machine and whip back to 1994 uh, during that console war. There was a little game came out of, um, came out of Louisiana called Doom uh, by a company called id software and doom was made by a very small team of people operating very much outside of any kind of mainstream or commercial video game development in fact the company id software started because john carmack wrote an engine to try and port super mario brothers to get back to nintendo and and the sort of major commercial video game presence at the time but that company satisfies a lot of what we think of as indie development it was just back then and i think that a lot of game development, especially on PC back then, where distribution in the early ages of BBSs was essentially free, just like it is now on the internet, that that whole world shifted and changed at some point, and that stuff did stop until it came back, you know, semi-recently, to your point. Um, and that's because games got more complicated. You needed more people. Uh, and so even companies like id ballooned to the point where they got to be huge organizations and got acquired by Bethesda. Um and a lot of those indie developers sort of, you know, fell apart. The small studios got merged into bigger studios, got bought by even bigger studios. Yet, you start to get the the age of the mega publishers that gets us up to present day. And in present day, you know, really like mid-aughts maybe, mid to late-aughts, the things that you had, you had consoles that started to afford the opportunity to play indie games, specifically Xbox Live Arcade at the time. Uh, you had the internet, where you could actually distribute those games. You had the the growth and rise of steam in the late aughts, uh, early teens, becoming a huge differentiator on the PC. Um, you had software tools that made it possible for small teams to develop games, right? New middleware that did a lot of the heavy lifting engines, um, like unity that made it much cheaper to develop not only games period, but also multi-platform games. You have more chances of finding a bigger audience. Um, one of the best analogies I've ever used for, for the growth of indie games is that as AAA teams got even bigger, any one role on that AAA team became even less meaningful, right? So your ownership and impetus to do that work on a AAA team got smaller and smaller at the same time that your ability to do it on your own got bigger and bigger. So you feel disenfranchised working for a big publisher, big studio making, you know, I don't know, making cobblestone streets all day long for four years. So you decide to leave, and not only can you leave and they'll barely notice, but you can take some of your friends with you, they'll barely notice them too, and now you've got enough people to make a whole game on your own. You know, video games have had this opportunity to like 
challenge and disrupt the status quo and to change how the audience thinks about them because we have more options. We have more people making different kinds of games. Um, so I feel like this argument, uh, this internet argument is maybe fizzling out now. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just begun. But it felt like for the past few months, I was reading a lot of articles about whether certain video games are actually video games. Um, here's why I normally put it. It's not a debate that I'm personally interested in having. I don't think it's interesting. I think defining what is and isn't a video game is really prescriptive, and it's actually really boring. It really misses the point of what's interesting about these things. So I'm happy to, you know, I don't know, circumvent that entire debate and instead talk about things that I think are interesting. And a lot of this gets into, you know, I mentioned Gone Home before. There was a lot of debate over whether Gone Home was a game because you didn't shoot any. There were some, actually some really good parodies uh, where people made, you know, uh, counter-strike mods with gone homes level you didn't shoot anyone or there weren't puzzles in it per se and if, if those are the kind of sole definitions or, or um, delimiters of what is and isn't a game that's actually really boring to me um, and i think video games have an opportunity in that we still have not locked down the vocabulary of what is and isn't a video game and then something new will come out so, you know a lot of times new stuff comes out and it doesn't do well but Enough times it does come out and do well that it really, I find it very heartening. But I also find it very interesting. I think it's a great time to be making games right now. I just started playing a game called Her Story, which has all the technology of a Sega CD game. It's an FMV game. Um, it even approximates a sort of old school, you know, early 90s desktop. Uh, and it's great. It's great. I'm playing it on the couch in the morning with my girlfriend and we're sitting there like, you know, taking notes like what what do we need to search for next? Is it a video game? Are, are there puzzles in it? Does it have um you know, can you be better or worse at it? I don't know. I don't really care. Uh it's it's really good. It's really fun. Um and that was made by uh, one guy, Sam Barlow, who to get back to the earlier sort of anecdote about AAA dev- uh, developers leaving. He was one of the developers on um, Konami's later Silent Hill games. Uh, And now he's doing this, which is like, for me, a lot more interesting. So I'm going to wrap this up with two, I believe, very simple questions. Uh, Number one, are video games art? This is a bigger question now, especially in light of some of the, say, reactionary cultural topics surrounding video games of hey they should just be fun get out of the way stop trying to overthink them etc etc i'm sure everyone's familiar with these arguments um i think unequivocally video games are art like like without a doubt i think the supreme court agrees with me it's at a point where this idea that they're not is almost embarrassing for anyone that makes that argument it's it's awkward even um so, yeah, I think they are unequivocally art. I think, you know, the bigger question to me is what that means. What's our responsibility? And I think, you know, if you look at art criticism and art and the audience for art, it looks a lot different than it does for video games. If you look at musical criticism and discussion of music, that also looks a lot different than it does for video games. So I think for me, it's actually really interesting. If video games are art, it really starts to raise the question of like, how do we actually talk about them and what does the audience expect to read about them and you know where do the um, universities 
come into play here? Where do the museums come into play here? The Smithsonian Museum of Art, uh, Museum of American Art, uh, had a big exhibit on video games. That that was really notable. Um, you have MoMA putting video games into their permanent collection. So as all this stuff happens, and as video games sort of take their cultural mantle, a mantle that has not been afforded to them for some time, um, I think we'll get a lot more comfortable talking about them as art. I think games that are very a-commercial will start to be discussed, recognized, um, and, and you know, and and critiqued and studied in a way that we do with most art forms. And so none of this is to say that we're not going to be able to shoot dudes in Call of Duty, right? Like this idea that a lot of people I think are really worried about, like if, if there are other video games or if we're critical of video games that, that we won't be able to shoot dudes or that like nobody's going to get, get a new Shenmue or I don't know what, but, <laughs> but like none of that's true that like that's been happening in film for decades, for 30, 40 years. And Michael Bay still makes movies. And they still make money somehow. Speaking like, of, Michael Bay, this is this is a good lead-in to the final question. Are video games fart? Hmm. I, I think I see what you did there. Um, I'm going to choose to interpret this in a certain way. Okay. Are video games puerile, noisy, cacophonous, twitchy messes that are um, culturally... Uh, Barren. Is that? Yeah, I, I I think that's fair. Okay. Um, I think some are. Sure. They can Absolutely. be that too. That's the yeah. great thing about video games. I think some movies are. I think there's plenty of books are. We have. We there's have, a place uh, for art and fart. Yeah, Dean Koontz still writes books. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I think there's plenty of room for both. And a lot of times, I like the fart. Yeah, I think it, I, I think so too. I mean, I'm biased because I care about video games. Um, but you know what? I think more people should. And that's why we did a podcast about it. So hopefully somebody who didn't care about video games before and thought they were just fart now thinks they might be art. Uh, to wrap things up, I want to thank you, Chris Grant, who sometimes likes the fart, uh, for joining me on today's episode. Hey, thanks. Uh, Philadelphia's still better than Austin. I want to thank our producer, John Lagomarsino, and I want to thank you, the listener, for listening. Uh, you can find more of our stuff on TheVerge.com, or if you care about video games, you should visit Polygon.com. It's a website, and it is my favorite place to read about video games. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at What's Tech. You can find us on all sorts of podcast uh, platforms, but the one I recommend you visit, uh, whether you use it or not, is iTunes, where you can leave a review for the show. Leaving even a simple starred review goes a long way towards getting the show out to more people, and we thoroughly appreciate it. Until next time, we will see you later. Bye.